Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Narrated by Sean McKinley God's Troubadour The Story of St. Francis of Assisi by Sophie Jewett Chapter 10 Brother Wolf Said Grey Brother, Where shall we lair today? For from now we follow new trails. By Kipling The huts in the plain below Assisi were the home of the little poor men, in so far as they had a home. But, like the troubadours and knights-errant, they were wanderers always, just as Sir Lancelot and Sir Gawain would ride away from the court of King Arthur to fight for any forlorn lady, or for any hard-pressed knight, so Brother Leone or Brother Francis would set forth at any moment to carry help to the miserable. But the brothers went on foot, and they wore no armor, and fought no battles, yet they had need to be as brave as the best of knights, for they went among the sick and cared for those who were dying of most terrible diseases. They met fierce enemies, too, since many people hated them because they spoke without fear in the streets, saying that pride and greed and war are wicked, and that folk should live by love and labor, not by fighting and robbery. When people saw that the brothers really lived as they preached, that when they were stoned by cruel hands and abused by cruel tongues, they returned only gentleness for anger. Many began to listen gladly, and even barons and princes came to love Francis and his brothers, as the poor and wretched had loved them from the first. Francis himself had a manner so sweet and winning that no one could refuse to listen to him, and sometimes he used to be sent for to make peace between two enemies, because even angry men, listening to his voice, forgot their hatred and were ready to forgive and to be friends again. The stories say, moreover, that he could control not fierce men only, but the fiercest of wild beasts. One of the places which Francis often visited is a little city called Gubbio, about fifteen miles north of Assisi. Almost all the way the road lies across the high mountains, and the traveller can overlook the long Umbrian valley. From these bare heights Perugia and Assisi seem to lie low, but far to the south on clear days the tops of the tallest Apennines stand out against the sky. Before the road drops to the narrow valley which lies below the gates of Gubbio, Francis, who loved the mountains, always turned to look back at the great peaks, shining white in winter-time, or soft and blue if it were summer. Gubbio looks not unlike Assisi, but is still more steeply built up a mountainside. In those days the stone houses seemed to huddle within the great city walls for shelter, 
for there was frequent fighting at Gubbio. Even in times of peace, people were often afraid to go beyond the gates, because in the forests and caves on the mountain lived daring robbers and brigands. Besides the savage men, there were also savage beasts, and the shepherds feared for their lambs and kids when they heard the howling of the wolves at night. Once, when Brother Francis came to Gubbio, all the city was in terror because of a wolf, the largest and fiercest ever known. The huge creature prowled about the country, devouring sheep and goats. But, worse than that, it fell upon men and had killed more than one shepherd. No man dared to go out of the gates alone, and even three or four together went armed as if to battle, for the beast came close to the city walls, and his strength was as that of three hunters. Bands of citizens had been out to seek the wolf, but had found only the track of his big feet and the bones of the victims that he had eaten. Every night the folk of Gubbio, safely barred within their stone houses, told a new story of the four-footed enemy, how a shepherd had lost his fattest sheep and two of his best dogs, how a soldier, riding alone toward evening from the next town, had seen a great gray creature moving in the woods by the roadside, and had spurred his horse to its best speed, and reached the gate with the beast close at the heels of the frightened horse. Night after night the children of Gubbio shivered in their beds, thinking of a long shadow that crept about the city walls in the moonlight, and seeming to hear the pad of four swift feet, coming nearer and nearer. Brother Francis had been often in Gubbio, and was well known there, and much loved, and therefore all the people turned to him with the stories of their suffering. He was sorry, says the old tale, to see the folk wishing, but not daring, to go outside the gates, because the wolf was most terrible and fierce. To the astonishment and horror of everybody, Francis declared that he would himself go out and meet the wolf. Though all the crowd begged him not to venture, and filled his ears with accounts of the cruelty of the beast, the little poor man, followed by one or two brothers, went out from the city gate and down the road toward the spot where the wolf was thought to lurk. Behind the brothers came the citizens of Gubbio, still frightened, but curious to see what would happen, and, it may be, quieted by the coolness and fearlessness of Francis. Close at the heels of the brothers marched certain venturesome boys, and at the very end of the procession dangled a group of smaller, timider children, round-eyed and open-mouthed, who clutched each other's hands and were always ready to scamper home at a moment's warning. About a quarter of a mile beyond the gate, where a wood of tall oaks and walnuts shadowed the road, those who were nearest turned pale at the sight of the wolf, coming swiftly along with his great jaws open, eager to spring upon Brother Francis, who walked ahead and alone. He went, not as a soldier goes to meet an enemy, but as one might go out to meet a welcome friend. As the unarmed man and the wild beast neared each other, Francis called cheerily, Come hither, Brother Wolf, I ask you, for Christ's sake, to do no harm to me nor to anyone. 
Then the crowd saw with wonder that the terrible wolf stopped running, and that the great wicked jaws closed, and presently the creature came softly up to Brother Francis, and meek as a lamb lay down at his feet. And Francis spoke to him as one man might reason with another. Brother Wolf, you do much harm in all this countryside, and you have committed many crimes, hurting and killing God's creatures. Not only have you killed and eaten beasts, but you have dared to kill men, made in God's image, and therefore you deserve to be punished like the worst of thieves and murderers. And all the people cry out and murmur against you, and everybody is your enemy. The wolf lay perfectly still, with his head flat in the dust of the road, and his red tongue lolled out like that of a winded hound. The people forgot their fright, and spread themselves in a circle that all might see and hear. The children tiptoed closer to look at the monster who had filled all their dreams with terror. But I wish, Brother Wolf, went on the voice of Francis, to make peace between you and this folk, so that you shall not harm them any more. And they shall forgive you all your misdeeds, and neither the men nor the dogs shall trouble you any longer. Then, with body and head and tail, the great wolf seemed to agree to all that Brother Francis said. Perhaps the wolf somewhat wondered what he should do for dinner, if he could not kill a sheep nor a child. Perhaps he was so charmed by this strange, gentle voice that he forgot all about his dinner. Brother Francis did not forget, as his next words showed. Brother Wolf, he said, since you are honestly willing to make and keep this peace, I promise you that, as long as you live, the men of this place shall give you food, so that you shall never go hungry, for I know well that it is hunger that has made you do all this evil. But I want you to promise me, in return, that you will never harm any human being, nor any animal. Will you promise me this? And the wolf nodded his head, as if he said, Yes, I promise. And Francis said, Brother Wolf, I want you to make me so sure of your promise that I cannot doubt it. The man held out his hand, and the beast lifted his paw and laid it clumsily on Brother Francis's palm, as much as to say, Here is my hand, I will keep my part of the treaty. And now, said Francis, I wish you, Brother Wolf, to come with me, and not to be afraid, and we will finish this business. Francis turned back toward the city, and the wolf walked beside him like a pet lamb, and the people of Gubbio followed, in great wonder silently. But once within the city, they spread the news from street to street, and everybody, big and little, young and old, crowded into the square to see Brother Francis and the wolf. Beside the fountain, in the center of the square, stood the little poor man in his gray gown, with the great gray beast at his side. When he spoke, his clear voice carried far, and all the crowd fell silent, striving to hear. "'Listen, my friends,' said Francis. "'Brother Wolf, who is here before you, has promised me on his honor never to hurt you again in any way, and you, in your turn, must promise to give him all that he needs. I will go surety for him that he will keep his promise.' And all the people, with one voice, 
pledged themselves to feed the wolf and not to harm him. Then, before them all, Brother Francis said to the wolf, And you, Brother Wolf, promise again before all this people that you will keep faith with them and will hurt no man, nor animal, nor any living thing. Then the wolf knelt down and bent his head and said as well as he could with his body, his head and his ears, that he meant to keep his word. And Brother Francis said, Give me your hand here, before all the people, as you did outside the gate. And the big gray paw was laid again in the hand of Brother Francis, while all the people shouted to heaven for joy that God had sent so good a man to deliver them from so terrible a beast. After this, Brother Wolf lived in Gubbio, and went about tamely from door to door, even entering the houses, without doing harm or being harmed. He was well fed and politely treated by everybody, and not a dog dared to bark at him. He must have led a long life of evil-doing before his change of heart, for, at the end of two years, he died of old age. When he died, all the citizens of Gubbio mourned for him greatly, for his own sake, and because the sight of him walking so meekly through the streets had made them always remember the goodness of Brother Francis. End of chapter 10 Brother Wolf This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Narrated by Sean McKinley God's Troubadour The Story of St. Francis of Assisi by Sophie Jewett Chapter 11 The Three Robbers Brother Francis made many journeys through the mountains and valleys about Gubbio, and all the people, rich and poor, came to know the drooping gray figure and the face that was always so cheerful and kind, though often it looked pale and thin. One of the little cities where he used to visit is called Borgo San Sepulcro. It lies at the foot of a mountain, and outside its walls was a deep moat with a drawbridge before each gate, for a city on a plain is harder to defend in battle than a city on a hill. Today the moat is dry and planted with vineyards, but the old walls are solid still, though they are so covered by trailing vines that an army of small boys might scale them. From Borgo San Sepulcro, Brother Francis visited the three little villages that lay each at the gates of a great castle, as a dog crouches at his master's feet. For village and villagers belong to the lord of the castle, and though he might be cruel and ill-treat them, they had no other protection in war save that of the castle courtyard, which was big enough to shelter them all. One day, in a place called Monte Casale, about two hours' walk from Borgo San Sepulcro, a youth from one of the castles came to Brother Francis. He had a great name and great wealth, and the common people stood aside to let him pass. The youth knelt down humbly before Francis and said, Father, I wish to be one of your poor brothers. 
Francis looked down kindly into the eager young face and replied, My son, you are used to a beautiful home, to rich clothing and delicate food. How will you endure poverty and hardships such as ours? But the lad answered simply, Can I not bear all these things by the help of God, even as you do? Francis was greatly pleased by this answer. He joyfully received the boy into the company of the little poor men, giving him the name of Brother Angelo, and his trust in the new brother was so great that a little time after he made him a guardian of a small house nearby where some of the brotherhood were living. The house stood in a wild region of mountains and forests, and at this time three famous and terrible robbers lived in the woods and were the terror of the neighborhood. On a certain day, when Francis was absent, these men came to the house of the brothers and asked for food. Brother Angelo answered them sharply, saying, You cruel thieves and murderers! You are not ashamed to steal what others have worked to earn, and you even have the face to ask for that which has been given in charity to God's poor. You are not fit to live, since you reverence neither men nor yet God who made you. Away with you, and do not let me see you here again. The robbers went off with dark looks, and muttered curses, but Brother Angelo felt well satisfied with himself, and perhaps a little proud that he had been so good a guardian. An hour later Brother Francis returned to the house, weary with long walking on the rough mountain paths. Over his shoulder he carried a bag of food that had been given to him for the brothers and for their poor folk. Brother Angelo greeted him with the story of the three robbers. He doubtless expected praise for having rid the house of such dangerous evildoers, but to his surprise Francis looked at him sadly and sternly and said, My son, you have behaved most cruelly. One should receive sinners with gentleness, not with harshness even as Jesus Christ, who said, They that are whole have no need of a physician, but they that are sick. And I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Moreover, Jesus himself used often to eat with the most wretched sinners, and you, my son, have forgotten all charity and the teaching of Christ. Go then quickly, Take this food and follow the robbers as fast as you can, until you overtake them. When you find them, give them this bread from me, and kneel down before them, and confess your fault, and beg them, in my name, not to do any more evil. Tell them that if they will give up their wicked life, I will find food for them always, and they shall want for nothing. It was a hard minute for Brother Angelo. He had looked for praise, and instead he was being reproved by the lips that had never before spoken any but gentle words to him. Surely this command was strange and unreasonable. How could he run after the men he had just driven away? How could he ask pardon of such wretches? But as he looked into the face of Brother Francis, so stern and yet so pitiful, a thought that he had never known before stirred in his heart. The thought that it is possible to love not only those who are good and gentle, but even the wicked and vile. 
for it was easy to see that Francis loved and pitied these robbers, who were prowling about, not far away, hungry and fierce like wild beasts. When this new thought came to Angelo, all his anger disappeared, and he was ready and glad to obey Brother Francis. He threw the bag over his shoulder, and ran along as fast as he could by the narrow path that the thieves had taken. The way was steep and stony, but he did not notice. There had been a thunderstorm, but now the sun came out, and the wind piled the clouds white and high above the mountain tops, and the sky was deep blue. The sunshine seemed to Angelo like the face of Brother Francis, shining upon him and driving away all his hard and cruel thoughts. He began to be more and more sorry as he remembered the rough words he had used to the beggars. As he went on, seeing no one, sometimes through the woods, sometimes over stony pastures, where sheep were feeding, he began to think, Suppose I cannot find the men, suppose they have taken some other road, and are wandering in the woods, hungry and miserable. At the thought he pulled the bag higher on his shoulder, and hurried along faster and faster. Just as the path made a sharp turn and entered the woods again, Angelo saw the three wretched men, sitting under a chestnut tree, trying in vain to find a few nuts among the husks, for it was late autumn, and the nuts were all gathered or decayed. As Angelo came running along the path, the three robbers eyed him sullenly, and when they recognized the haughty youth who had driven them so harshly from his door, they were ready to fall upon him and beat him. A minute later they sat in speechless surprise, for the boy threw himself and his bag down before them, crying, Here is food, my brothers. Take it, and forgive my cruelty. Brother Francis sends me to you, and begs you for his sake to accept the food. And he bids me tell you that, if you will give up your wicked life, he will care for you, and feed you always. Perhaps there were never three men more astonished than the robbers of Monte Casale. They devoured the food greedily, for they were starving. But as they ate, they began to say among themselves, What miserable creatures we are, who live by thieving and murder, and fear neither men nor God! And here is this youth, who said to us only what we richly deserved, asking our pardon, and bringing us food, and promising that the holy brother Francis will forgive and care for us. The three robbers became sorrier and sorrier, as they remembered all their wicked deeds. By and by one of them said, Let us go ourselves to brother Francis, and ask him if God will yet forgive us. It may be that the good brother will help us to live like honest folk once more. Thus it came about that the three infamous robbers of Monte Casale joined the company of little poor men, and spent the rest of their days in doing good and not evil to their fellow men. End of chapter 11 The Three Robbers This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Narrated by Sean McKinley God's Troubadour The Story of St. Francis of Assisi by Sophie Jewett
Chapter Twelve Nurse and Patient. One day in summer, Francis of Assisi came out from the city gate and walked down the mountain on his way to Portiuncula. He took a path that he loved well because it led him by the chapel of San Damiano, where, long ago, the good priest had hidden him from his father's anger, and where many times in that first year of trouble he had found shelter and comfort. He loved the little chapel the more because he had helped to rebuild it. He knew the very stones that he had laid with his own hands. Now the place was dear to him for another reason. For house and garden and little chapel belonged to a sisterhood, whose leader, Sister Chiara, had come to him in the early days at the Portiuncula, asking that she might live the same life of poverty and service as that of the little poor men. To her, and to all her company, Francis had been friend and father, and it made him happy that his old refuge had become their home. From the gate of San Damiano Francis could see the whole valley, where the August air quivered with heat, and the river-bed lay white and dry. The little huts in the plain were hidden in deep forest, and he thought how cool the shadow of the oaks and tall walnut trees would be at the end of his long journey. Hot as it was, he did not take the shortest road, but turned into a footpath that led to the leper hospital. He was barefooted and bareheaded. His robe was the color of the dusty path. He walked with bent head, wearily, for he was not strong, and the air at the foot of the mountain was still and close. Under the trees, men and women were resting through the hottest hours, and the children were playing quietly. A baby lay sound asleep on the brown grass, where the shadow of broad vine leaves fell across its face. A tired-looking donkey nibbled sadly along the hedgerows, which were dry and dusty, for the August rains had not begun. As Francis drew near, the men and women rose to greet him, and the children left their play to run and kiss his hand, for no one in all the countryside was so beloved as the little poor man. He petted the children, he found a greener twig for the donkey, and called him Brother Ass. He lingered to ask and answer questions, for he knew all the peasants, and they told him all their joys and sorrows. As he turned to go, a little girl, pushed forward by her mother, came toward him timidly, holding up a basket covered with vine leaves. The sun shone on the child's curly head and tiny brown arms. As she lifted the basket higher, the green leaves slipped aside, showing the deep purple of the August figs. "'Will you accept them, father, for your supper at the Portiuncula?' the mother said. "'They are ripe and sweet.' The child said nothing, but stood smiling up into the kind eyes of the little poor man. Brother Francis took the basket and bent to kiss the giver. "'God reward you, little one,' he said. "'I will carry the fruit to our sick brothers at the hospital.' One of the first duties which Francis had taught his little poor men was the care of the lepers, and some of the brothers always stayed in the hospital, and Francis himself went often to nurse and comfort the sufferers. On this August day, 
to his surprise, he found his brother nurses worn and discouraged. They turned eagerly to him, as always, when they were in trouble, and they told him a sad story. Father, one of them said, do not be angry with us, nor think that we have been impatient and have forgotten our rule of humbleness and service. There is here a leper so wretched in mind and body that not one of us can help him nor even control him. He is in constant pain, and nothing gives him relief, and he is as bad in spirit as in body, for he shrieks and curses when we come near him, and his words are so wicked that we are afraid to listen. I will go to him, said Francis, and they showed him the bed where the leper lay, muttering curses still with his parched and swollen lips. God give you peace, dear brother, said Francis, as he stepped to the bedside. What peace can I have from God who has taken away from me peace, and every other good thing, and has made me altogether miserable, cried the leper. I am in pain day and night, and these brothers of yours do not care for me as they should. They have done nothing, he complained bitterly. I will take care of you, brother, said Francis. I will do for you whatever you wish. Then wash me from head to foot with your own hands, cried the leper, still angrily, for all my body is covered with sores, and I am loathsome, even to myself. Then Francis, very patiently, began to bathe the leper, and his hand and his words were so tender that the wretched man was soothed and ceased to curse and complain. His pain vanished, too, under the care of his new nurse, and as he became comfortable in body, he grew gentle in spirit, and was sorry for his unkind and wicked words. The other brothers were astonished to see the man who had given them so much trouble become suddenly gentle and patient and grateful to them all. One day, as Francis sat by the bedside, the sick man turned to him with tears in his eyes. "'Forgive me, brother,' he said, "'all the evil that I have spoken of you and your brotherhood.' And Francis took his hand and spoke softly to him. "'My brother, you have suffered great pain. If you have not borne it meekly, ask God to forgive you, for his love is greater far than ours.' The old story tells how, a few weeks later, the leper died, at peace with God and with all the world. End of chapter 12 Nurse and Patient This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Narrated by Sean McKinley God's Troubadour The Story of St. Francis of Assisi by Sophie Jewett Chapter 12 With the Crusaders The tomb of God before us, our fatherland behind, our ships shall leap or billows steep before a charmed wind. Above our van great angels shall fight along the sky, while martyrs, pure and crowned saints, to God for rescue cry. The Red Cross knights and yeomen throughout the holy town, in faith and might, on left and right, shall tread the Paynim down. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, 
the burying place of God, why gay and bold, and steel and gold, or the past where Christ hath trod, from Crusader's Chorus by Charles Kingsley. From the first, the way in which the brotherhood of little poor men grew in numbers was a wonderful thing to see. Within a few years, it had outgrown the settlement in the plain and was a vast company, like a great army sent out to make not war, but peace. The groups of grey brothers were known all over Italy, and companies of them had gone to France and Spain and Germany, and even to the north of Africa. In foreign lands, just as in Italy, they preached their simple gospel, and preached it best by caring for the sick and the poor. Sometimes the brothers were received kindly in the far-off countries. Sometimes they were mocked and stoned, as they had been at home, and in Africa a brave little band was cruelly put to death. It seemed to Francis that he could not bear to stay where he was known and safe, while his brothers were enduring danger and even death in strange lands. Moreover, his heart yearned over the ignorant and miserable everywhere, and he longed to tell in other places what he had told in Italy, that men should love each other and live at peace, and that food and clothing and money should be for all, not for the few. It was only the gospel of the carpenter of Nazareth, but men had forgotten his teaching, though they built churches in his honor, and though they went to war in his name. In the year 1219, one of the great wars called Crusades, or Wars of the Cross, was going on. The Crusaders were soldiers from Europe, who fought in the Holy Land to drive the Saracens away from Jerusalem. That the Holy Sepulchre, where Christ was buried, and the hill where he was crucified, might not be in the hands of unbelievers, for the Saracens were not Christians, but Mohadamians. They were brave and able soldiers, however, and many times the knightly armies from England, France, Germany, and Italy suffered terrible defeats in Egypt or in Palestine. Fifteen years earlier, Francis Bernadone would have been the most eager of crusaders. The thought of the long voyage, of the battles to be fought in eastern lands for the rescue of the Holy Sepulchre, would have made him even happier than he had been when he rode out to his first fight. Now, Brother Francis, the little poor man, was no less determined to go with the crusading army, but he went with only peace and pity in his heart. He knew that where there were battles there would be wounded and dying to tend and comfort, and he hoped that, in the midst of hatred and cruelty, he might find a chance to speak of love and gentleness. He even hoped that he might go among the armies of the enemy and preach to them. The Italian crusaders were to set sail for Egypt from the port of Ancona, on the Adriatic Sea, toward the end of June. Francis and a company of his brothers crossed the mountains from Assisi and reached Ancona in time to go about from ship to ship, seeking to find passage. Since they were not soldiers, and since they had no money, they were forced to trust to the friendliness of the ship's captains, and, 
when the day of sailing came, places had been found for only Francis and eleven companions. It was a sad minute, for all wanted to go, and Francis could not bring himself to decide whom to leave behind. As he walked with them along the white beach, and looked away over the blue harbour where the ships rode at anchor, he spoke sorrowfully. My brothers, the shipmen will not take us all, and I have scarcely the courage to choose between you. Let us seek to know what is God's will. On the beach a little child was playing in the sand, and Francis called him to them. Do you know numbers, little one? he asked. Can you count? Yes, father, the child answered, proudly. I can count more than twenty. Then count me out eleven of these, my brothers, to go to sea with me to-night, when yonder ships set sail. The child did not understand what he was doing, but he went about solemnly among the company, and with his small finger told off eleven brothers, and, at evening, these eleven sailed away with Francis and the Crusaders across the southern sea. On the water the summer days were long and hot. Sometimes the wind died away, the sails hung empty, and the sun blistered the decks. The ships were crowded, and the soldiers were uncomfortable and discontented. Many fell sick of sunstroke and fever, and Francis and his brothers found plenty of misery ready to their kind hands. At night, when the breeze freshened, and the great sails filled slowly, when the sky darkened and the stars came out, when the ship's prow and the long oars cut through waves of wonderful, shining light, all the wretchedness of the day was forgotten, and the voyagers made merry. The soldiers sang at the ropes, the crusaders, common soldiers, and knights together, seated on the deck, listened, while someone told a marvellous story of Tristram, or of Roland. Then a troubadour would sing some brave and plaintive song, while his fingers made sweet music on an old Venetian lute. Francis was soon known to all, and he found many new friends. Sometimes even the knightly tales were neglected, while the soldiers questioned the little poor man and listened to the story of the Brotherhood of Assisi. Francis was with the crusading army in Egypt for a long time, but we know little of what happened to him. A certain French bishop wrote home a letter which has somehow been kept all these seven hundred years. He tells in it of the wonderful brother Francis, whom every one reveres because he is so lovable, and who is not afraid to go even into the army of the Saracens. Francis was so fearless and so gentle that commonly strangers and even enemies received him kindly, and he came to be almost as well known among the Saracens as among the Crusaders but there were some who hated him because he preached a strange religion, which they feared, thinking that it might bring success to the Christian armies and defeat to their own. One day Francis and Brother Illuminatus, who was his comrade at this time, were returning alone from the Saracen camp to that of the Christians. Their course lay westward, and, where the treeless plain rose toward the red sunset, they could see the line of the crusaders' tents. The distance was short, and they had good hope of reaching their friends before darkness fell, when suddenly, from the south, a band of mounted men appeared, 
As they came near, Francis could see that they were not crusaders in heavy mail, but lightly armed Saracens on swift Arabian horses. They swept across the plain like a flight of birds, and Francis watched them admiringly, for he loved all beautiful things. But the fleet riders had quick, fierce eyes, as they espied the grey robes. They wheeled sharply and fell upon the little poor men, like wolves upon sheep, so the old story says. Wounded and helpless in their cruel hands, Francis somehow made his enemies understand that he wished to be taken into the presence of the Soldan himself, their emperor. Perhaps they were afraid to kill a man who appealed to them in the name of their master. Perhaps they expected a reward for their prisoners. Perhaps even their hard hearts were softened by the sight of the men who neither fought nor feared. At any rate, they finally bound the two brothers and carried them off to the Saracen camp. The next day Francis had his wish fulfilled, for he and brother Illuminatus were brought into the royal tent. The Soldan sat on a splendid throne, and his dress was rich and beautiful. All about the throne stood armed guards, and, at the foot of it, black Ethiopian slaves, with shining eyes and teeth. On one side were the Soldan's counsellors, his wise men, who could read in the stars the things that were to happen in the future, who could tell the meaning of dreams as the magicians had tried to do in Egypt since the day, and long before the day, when young Joseph put them all to shame. The wise men wore turbans and long flowing robes. They had white beards, and deep-set eyes, and solemn faces. In front of the throne stood Francis and his one little brother. They were bareheaded and barefooted. Their rough grey robes were dusty and torn and stained with blood. They seemed no match for the tall magicians, who looked down on them with scorn, thinking them madmen or fools. But the Soldan was grave and thoughtful. He wanted to know which spoke the truth, his learned counsellors, whom he had always trusted, or these simple, poor men with their new teaching. The wise men could give no help to their sovereign, and, at last, Francis said, My lord, bid your slaves build here a fire before you, great and hot. It may be that God will show us a sign. When the red fire blazed high, Francis spoke across it to the magicians, If you love your religion better than your life, walk into the midst of this fire with me that it may be seen which faith should be held most certain and most holy. Then the wise men cowered away from the flames with horror, and covered their faces in shame, knowing that they dared not go into the fire. And Brother Francis cried aloud to the Soldan, Promise me, my lord, for thyself and thy people, that if I come out unharmed, thou wilt worship Christ, and I will enter the fire alone. But the Soldan was afraid, for he thought that his people might revolt, knowing that they held the wise men in great dread and honor. Therefore he hastily sent the brothers with a safeguard back to the camp of the crusaders. But he marveled much at the quiet, grey-robed man who had no fear. End of chapter 13 With the Crusaders This is a LibriVox recording. 
All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Narrated by Sean McKinley. God's Troubadour. The Story of St. Francis of Assisi. By Sophie Jewett. Chapter 14. The Christmas at Greccio. The beautiful mother is bending low where her baby lies, helpless and frail for her tending, but she knows the glorious eyes. The mother smiles and rejoices while the baby laughs in the hay. She listens to heavenly voices. The child shall be king one day. O dear little Christ in the manger, let me make merry with thee. O king in my hour of danger, wilt thou be strong for me? Adapted from the Latin of Jacopone da Todi in the thirteenth century. One night in December, a few years after his return from the east, Brother Francis, with one companion, was walking through the beautiful valley of the Valino River, toward Rieti, a little city where he came often on his way from Assisi to Rome. Tonight he had turned somewhat aside from the main road, for he wished to spend Christmas with his friend Sir John of Greccio. Greccio is a tiny village, lying where the foothills begin on the western side of the valley. The very feet of Brother Francis knew the road so well that he could have walked safely in the darkness. But it was not dark. The full moon floated over the valley, making the narrow river and the sharp outlines of the snow-covered mountains shine like silver. The plain and the lower hills were pasture-land, and, not far from the road, on a grassy slope, the brothers saw the red glow of an almost spent shepherd's fire. "'Let us stop and visit our brothers, the shepherds,' said Francis, and they turned toward the fading fire. There was no sense of winter in the air, scarcely a touch of frost, and the only snow was that on the silver peaks against the sky. The shepherds, three men and one boy, lay sleeping soundly on the bare ground, with their sheepskin coats drawn closely around them. All about them the sheep were sleeping too, but the solemn white sheep-dogs were wide awake. If a stranger's foot had trod the grass never so softly, every dog would have barked, and every shepherd would have been on his feet in an instant. But the dogs trotted silently up to the Grey Brothers, and rubbed against them, as if they said, We are glad to see you again. For they knew the friendly feet of the little poor man, and they had more than once helped him to eat the bread that was his only dinner. Followed by the dogs, Francis walked about among the shepherds, but they slept on, as only men who live out of doors can sleep, and Francis could not find it in his heart to waken them. The sheep lay huddled together in groups for more warmth. Around one small square of grass a net was stretched, and inside it were the mother sheep who had little lambs. There was no sound except the faint cry, now and then of a baby lamb. The coals, over which the shepherds had cooked their supper, paled from dull red to gray, and there was only a thin column of smoke, white in the moonlight. Francis sat down on a stone, and the largest of the white dogs pressed up against his knee. Another went dutifully back to his post beside the fold where the mothers and babies slept. The Italian hillside seemed to Francis to change to that of Bethlehem. 
which he had seen, perhaps, on his eastern journey. The clear December night seemed like that of the first Christmas Eve. How these shepherds sleep, he thought. How they would awaken if they heard the peace on earth of the angel's song. Then he remembered sadly how the armies that called themselves Christians had year after year battled with the Saracens over the cradle and the tomb of the Prince of Peace. The moonlight grew misty about him. The silver heights of the mountains and the silver line of the river faded, for the eyes of Brother Francis were full of tears. As the two brothers went on their way, Francis grew light of heart again. The sight of the shepherd sleeping on the grass had given him a new idea, and he was planning a surprise for his friends at Greccio. For at Greccio all were his friends, from Sir John, his host, down to the babies in the street. In the valley of Rieti he was almost as well known and as dearly loved as in his own valley of Assisi. The children of Greccio had never heard of Christmas trees, nor perhaps of Christmas presents. I am not sure that in the thirteenth century Italians had the beautiful custom which they now have of giving presents at Twelfth Night, in memory of the coming of the three kings with their gifts to the Christ child. But in the thirteenth century, even as now, Christmas was the happiest festival of the year. This year all the folk of Greccio, big and little, were happier than usual, because their beloved brother Francis was to help them keep their Christmas tide. Next day Francis confided his plan to his friend Sir John, who promised that all should be ready on Christmas Eve. On the day before Christmas the people came from all the country around to see and hear Brother Francis. Men, women, and children, dressed in their holiday clothes, walking, riding on donkeys, crowding into little carts drawn by great white oxen, from everywhere and in every fashion, the country folk came toward Greccio. Many came from far away, and the early winter darkness fell long before they could reach the town. The light of their torches might be seen on the open road, and the sound of their singing reached the gates of Greccio before them. That night the little town was almost as crowded as was Bethlehem on the eve of the first Christmas. The crowds were poor folk, for the most part peasants from the fields, charcoal burners from the mountains, shepherds in their sheepskin coats and trousers made with the wool outside, so that the wearers looked like strange, two-legged animals. The four shepherds, who had slept so soundly a few nights before, were of the company, but they knew nothing of their midnight visitors. The white dogs knew, but they could keep a secret. The shepherds were almost as quiet as their dogs. They always talked and sang less than other people, having grown used to long silences among their sheep. Gathered at last into the square before the church, by the light of the flaring torches, for the moon would rise late, the people saw with wonder and delight the surprise which Brother Francis and Sir John had prepared for them. They looked into a real stable. There was the manger full of hay, there were a live ox and a live ass, even by torchlight their breath showed in the frosty air, and there, on the hay, lay a real baby, wrapped from the cold, asleep, and smiling. It looked as sweet and innocent as a Christ child himself. The people shouted with delight, they clapped their hands, and waved their torches. 
Then there was a silence, for Brother Francis stood before them, and the voice they loved so well, and had come so far to hear, began to read the old story of the birth of the child Jesus, of the shepherds in the fields, and of the angel's song. When the reading was ended, Brother Francis talked to them as a father might speak to his children. He told of the love that is gentle as a child, that is willing to be poor and humble as the baby who was laid in a manger among the cattle. He begged his listeners to put anger and hatred and envy out of their hearts this Christmas Eve, and to think only thoughts of peace and good will. All listened eagerly while Brother Francis spoke, but the moment he finished the great crowd broke into singing. From the church tower the bells rang loud, the torches waved wildly, while voices here and there shouted for Brother Francis and for the blessed little Christ. Never before had such glorious hymns nor such joyous shouting been heard in the town of Greccio. Only the mothers with babies in their arms and the shepherds in their woolly coats looked on silently and thought, We are in Bethlehem. End of chapter 14 The Christmas at Greccio This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Narrated by Sean McKinley God's Troubadour The Story of St. Francis of Assisi by Sophie Jewett Chapter 15 La Verna the story of the troubadour is almost finished. The last years of his life were years of suffering and sorrow. Now that the brotherhood had grown so large, many of its members were forgetting the teaching of their leader. Instead of serving Lady Poverty, they were serving Lady Wealth, or Lady Pride, or Lady Fame, and they were little poor men only on the outside, in their coarse grey robes and their unshod feet. This change in his brother's well-nigh broke the heart of Francis of Assisi. He remembered the first winter in the hovel at Rivo Torto, when, in spite of cold and want, the little company had been so happy and so united. He remembered the joy with which they had built the huts in the plain, and had planted their tiny gardens. It seemed to him that his children were scattered far and wide over the world that they were no longer simple servants of all who needed help, but that each was striving for his own comfort and his own gain. There came back to him an old dream. He had dreamed of a little black hen who had so many chickens that she could not gather them all under her wings. Some would be left out to die of cold or to be stolen by the fox. Even in his grief, Francis smiled over his dream. I am the little hen, he thought and I cannot any longer shelter my brood. Besides his sorrow, Francis had much illness and pain to bear. His body, Brother Ass, as he sometimes called it, was worn and weak, but his heart was brave, and his spirit was always sweet. In those days, sick people could not have the help and comfort that doctors and nurses have learned to give. There was no ether nor chloroform to put a patient out of pain and surgery was horribly cruel. Once, when Francis was exceedingly ill, 
the doctors decided that they must burn his forehead with a hot iron. As the surgeon came close to him with a terrible rod, heated till it looked white and quivering, Francis shrank away fearfully for a minute. Then he lifted his hand and said cheerily, Brother Fire, thou art one of the most beautiful of all things. Help me in this hour. Thou knowest how I have always loved thee. Be courteous to me to-day. The brothers, unable to bear the sight, had gone to the next room. A moment later they came back, and Francis, smiling on them, said, Why did you run away in such a cowardly fashion? I have not felt the pain. He added, Brother Doctor, if it is necessary, you may begin again. One great joy remained to Francis almost until the end, the joy of being out of doors. His love for a life under the sky, his love for birds and flowers, for long journeys through the river valleys or among the high mountains, never left him. One mountain he loved best of all. It is called La Verna, and it stands wild and beautiful among the Tuscan Apennines. A certain Count Orlando, to whom all the region belonged, had once heard Brother Francis preach, and had said to him, I have a mountain in Tuscany. It is a silent and lonely place, where one might rest and think and pray. If you would like it, I will gladly give it to you and to your brothers. The old story says that Brother Francis was greatly pleased by this gift of the mountain. He thanked first God, and then Messer Orlando, and he promised that when he should return to the Portiuncula, he would send some of the brothers to Messer Orlando, at his castle of Chiusi. This castle stood, and its roofless walls still stand, where the road begins to climb to La Verna. So it happened that when Count Orlando went home, he was visited by two grey brothers from Assisi, come to see if, in the forest of La Verna, they might find a fit place for Brother Francis. Count Orlando received the two brothers with the greatest joy and friendliness, and, because the mountain was filled with wild beasts, he sent armed men to escort the strangers. The little poor men, with their guard of soldiers, searched about on the steep, rocky mountain, till they found a small level place like a natural terrace, looking off to the southwest. Here, they said, is the right spot. Let us build huts for ourselves and for our brothers. The soldiers of Count Orlando began to cut down great branches from the fir trees and beeches, and with these they helped the brothers to make rude shelters. Then startled eyes looked out from the green shadows, and soft feet rustled away over the fallen leaves and a thousand pair of wings made a whirring sound, for all the wild things of La Verna were disturbed by the loud voices and the ringing axes of Count Orlando's soldiers, and Brother Francis was not there to understand and comfort them. When the green, sweet-smelling huts were finished, the two brothers, with their guard of soldiers, went back to the castle of Chiusi to thank Count Orlando for his gift. Then they journeyed down to the plain of Assisi, and reported to Brother Francis that the Tuscan mountain was the fittest place in the world in which to think and pray. Brother Francis rejoiced at the account of the two brothers, and he thought it good that a company of the poor men should keep at La Verna the feast of St. Michael and all angels, which comes at the end of September. He started out bravely on foot, 
as of old, but during the long, rough journey he became so weak that the brothers were forced to ask help of a peasant who was riding upon an ass. The peasant gave his beast to the sick man, and walked beside him all the way, until they reached the sheer grey crags below the little huts that Count Orlando's soldiers had built. Here they rested under an oak tree before making the steep climb. Brother Francis sat looking about the place of which he had heard so much, and, says the story, as he was looking and thinking, there came great flocks of birds from every direction, singing and beating their wings, and they showed signs of joy and welcome. They circled around Francis, so that some perched on his head, some on his shoulders, on his arms, in his lap, and even on his feet. His companions and the peasant saw them with wonder, but Francis said, all happy of heart, I believe, dearest brothers, that our Lord Jesus Christ is pleased that we are to live in this lonely mountain, since our sisters and brothers the birds show such joy at our coming. The little company lived for some weeks on the mountain. Apart from the others, that he might be more alone, Francis had a tiny hut, and here he spent much time in prayer. Only Brother Leone was allowed to come to him, before dawn each day, bringing his scant food. His only other comrade was a falcon, whose shrill cry used to wake him long before light. But sometimes, when Brother Francis, worn and ill, lay sleeping, Brother Falcon, like a person discreet and pitiful, would be silent until later in the morning. The forest was full of singing birds, but sweeter music than theirs sounded sometimes in the ears of the little poor man, who, growing weaker and weaker in body, fixed his mind more and more on the glory and the joy of the heavenly life. Once, as he thought on these things, longing to know what heaven might be like, he saw before him a most beautiful angel, with a viol in his left hand and a bow in his right. As Francis gazed, wondering, the angel touched the strings with the bow, and so soft a melody was heard that the spirit of Francis was filled with sweetness, and he forgot all his pain of body and mind. One morning, in the house before sunrise, Francis was kneeling in prayer not far from his hut, when a light shone in the heaven above him, and came nearer and nearer, and, behold, it was a seraph with six wings shining and aflame. As the seraph came nearer in swift flight, he seemed to Francis like the figure of a man crucified. Two wings were lifted above his head, and two outstretched in flight, and two were folded down, covering all his body. And Francis was filled with fear, and yet with great joy. Then all the mountain of La Verna seemed to burn with the rosiest flame. The flame shone out and lighted all the hills and valleys far away, as if it were the red light of dawn. The shepherds, watching their flocks, were frightened to see the mountain all ablaze, and afterward they declared that the flame had lasted on La Verna for an hour and more. The light shone even into the windows of the low houses and little inns in the country round about, so that some mule-drivers, who were sleeping at an inn not far away to the west, rose and saddled and loaded their mules, thinking that it was day 
as they went on their journey they were astonished to see the beautiful light fade away over la verna and after an hour of darkness the real sun rise if the shepherds on the hills and the muleteers going sleepily along the road wondered and feared because of the great light that was not dawn the brothers on la verna wondered still more but brother francis knew what the vision meant often in these last years his life had seemed a failure and sometimes he had envied the martyrs of the early church and even his own brothers who had given their lives for the faith in africa and in spain now the vision of pain and glory seemed to say to him be content little poor man for not by the martyrdom of thy body but by the fire of thy spirit thou art made like to thy master christ and the brothers who wrote down the story tell how from that wonderful hour upon the mountain their beloved leader bore on his hands and on his feet marks like the nail prints of the crucified end of chapter 15 la verna this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org Narrated by Sean McKinley God's Troubadour The Story of St. Francis of Assisi by Sophie Jewett Chapter 16 The Troubadour's Last Song Almost the first we know of St. Francis of Assisi is the story of the sweet-voiced lad who liked to sing gay songs of love and war almost the last that we know of him is the more beautiful story of the song which he made and sang only a little while before he died he had been terribly ill he was weak and sad and in great pain but one morning his friends heard the wonderful voice strong and clear as of old singing words that they had never known he had often sung the sweet old latin hymns but these words were italian and so simple that it seemed as if the singer had made them as he sang and so he did the weary suffering man was still at heart the troubadour he was still as he used to call himself the lark and like the lark he sang for sheer happiness and praise it is not easy to put the quaint old italian into english the beauty and the music seemed to disappear. The last song of God's troubadour, the song that cheered his hours of pain and comforted the friends who loved him, was a song of the sun. O Lord, we praise thee for our brother's son, who brings us day, who brings us golden light. He tells us of thy beauty, Holy One. We praise thee, too, when falls the quiet night, for sister moon and every silver star that thou hast set in heaven clear and far for our brave brother wind we give thee praise for clouds and stormy skies for gentle air and for our sister water cool and fair who does service in sweet humble ways but when the winter darkens bitter cold we praise thee every night and all day long for our good friend so merry and so bold dear brother fire beautiful and strong for our good mother earth we praise thee lord 
for the bright flowers she scatters everywhere, for all the fruit and grain her fields afford, for her great beauty and her tireless care. It was through this Song of the Sun that the last great joy of his life came to Francis. He was the guest of the Bishop of Assisi in the same place where, so long before, he had gone with the story of his father's anger and his mother's grief. Bishop Guido must have been an old man now, but he was, as always, impulsive and hot-tempered. He had kept a certain love for Francis all these years, but, with most of his neighbors, he was often at odds. Just now a sharp feud was going on between the bishop and the governor of the city, and all of Assisi was in tumult. Francis loved his native town, and he loved peace with all his heart, and this quarrel meant to him the deepest sorrow. His days were full of suffering, but he forgot himself, and only prayed that he might make peace before he died. One day he called a brother to him and said, Go to the governor and beg him to come with all the chief men of the city to the porch before the bishop's palace. The governor came at this request from the dying Francis, and when the bishop stepped out at his palace door, he found himself in a gathering of the very men with whom he was at strife. Just at that moment two grey brothers came forward before the two proud enemies, and one said, My lords, Brother Francis has made a song for the praise of God, and he begs you will all listen to it. And they began to sing the song of the sun. They sang the praise of sun and moon, of wind and fire, of sister water and mother earth. And then their voices rose higher and sweeter in a new stanza that Francis, in his longing for peace, had added. We praise thee, Lord, for gentle souls who live in love and peace, who bear with no complaint all wounds and wrongs, who pity and forgive, each one of these, most high, shall be thy saint. The old story tells that the governor listened, standing humbly, weeping hot tears, for he greatly loved the blessed Francis. When the song was finished, know in truth, he said, that I pardon the Lord Bishop, whom I wish and ought to regard as my Lord, for even if someone had murdered my brother, I should be ready to forgive the murderer. After these words he threw himself at the feet of the bishop and said to him, Behold me, ready to do all that you wish, for love of our Lord Jesus Christ, and for his servant Francis. Then the bishop, taking him by the hand, lifted him and said, In my calling I ought to be humble but since I am by nature too quickly angry, you must pardon me. A few days later, Brother Francis was carried out from the bishop's palace, and borne tenderly down the familiar road toward the Portiuncula. At the leper hospital, he asked his bearers to halt, and he looked back with dim eyes, lovingly, and lifting his feeble hand, he blessed Assisi. Then the grey procession entered the forest, and passed softly through the fallen leaves to the poor huts and the bright garden which had been the dearest home of the brotherhood. And here the troubadour, the little poor man, died, happy and high-hearted, singing praise at the last for the welcome coming of our sister death.
in Umbria. Under a roof of twisted boughs, and silver leaves and noonday sky, among gaunt trunks where lizards house, on the hot sunburnt grass I lie. I hear soft notes of birds that drowse, and steps that echo by, unseen along the sunken way, that drops below the city wall. Not of to-day nor yesterday, the hidden holy feet that fall. O whispering leaves, beseech them stay. O birds, awake and call. Say that a pilgrim, journeying long, from that loud land that lies to west, where tongues debate of right and wrong, would be the little poor man's guest, would learn the lark's divine sun's song, and how glad hearts are blessed. Say, Master, we are of overseas, confess that oft our hearts are set on gold and gain, and if with these for lore of books we strive and fret, perchance some lore of bended knees and sainthood we forget. Still, in one thought our lips are bold, that in our world of haste and care, through days whose hours are bought and sold, days full of deeds and scant of prayer, of thy life's gospel this we hold, the hands that toil are fair. Therefore forgive, assoil each stain, of trade and hate, of war and wrath. Teach us thy tenderness for pain, thy music that no other hath, thy fellowship with sun and rain, and flowers along thy path. Thou dost not answer, down the track, where now I thought my feet must pass. With patient step and burden back, go, brother ox, and brother ass. A mountain cloud looms swift and black, or a shadowing stone and grass. The silver leaves are turned to grey, there comes no sound from hedge nor tree, only a voice from far away, born o'er the silent hills to me, entreats, Be light of heart to-day, to-morrow joy shall be. The glad of heart no hope betrays, since mother earth and sister death are good to know and sweet to praise. I hear not all the far voices, saith, of love that trod green Umbrian ways, and streets of Nazareth. End of chapter sixteen. The Troubadour's Last Song. End of God's Troubadour. The Story of St. Francis of Assisi by Sophie Jewett. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the Fileo Fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.